And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey, folks. Before we get to today's episode of the podcast, I wanted to say first, thank you for continuing to listen to the Total Soccer Show throughout the World Cup, even with the USMNT eliminated. We greatly appreciate people sticking with us. But we also understand if you want to check out other podcasts, too, listen to this one first and then check out other ones. And one I'm going to point you to directly is The Football Ramble. It is a wonderful way to uh, get your soccer coverage, but some lighthearted fare as well, uh, or combined, I guess, together would be a better way to put that, uh, because you're getting daily coverage of this World Cup all the way through the end of the tournament, covering uh, the biggest teams, obviously focusing a lot on England. They're an English podcast. I'm guessing you're going to get some love for England and maybe some frustration with England, depending on how things play out. They started in 2007 at a kitchen table. They have grown from there. They now have their own independent empire, and they are one of football's most important independent voices. So join them every morning for a slightly more lighthearted look at the nonsense that is this World Cup. Search Football Ramble in your podcast app to subscribe and listen now. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our review of the final two games of the 2022 World Cup round of 16. The Spanish media won't be raising their glasses to the national team and their endless sideways passes. Spain were a parody of themselves and their campaign hit a hitch. The best thing about them in Qatar was Luis Enrique's twitch. As for Morocco, they had a pretty good ringer who shares his name with an Irish singer. Bono had the edge and the whole team was astute. Next time, Spain, maybe you should try and shoot. And Portugal demolished a side who speak German and French after leaving their talisman on the bench. As the goals poured in, Ronaldo clapped and pretended he was happy. What are his chances of starting the next game? I'd say they're pretty crappy. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who was probably expecting a lot more U2 puns in that intro, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. I was really curious what it was going to be. I saw somebody tweeting about how we weren't allowed to make pro bono tweets, depending on how the shootout went. <laughs> I almost CC'd you in it, but was worried that I would then reverse jinx Morocco somehow. So in some way, I'm claiming credit for the Morocco win because I didn't reverse jinx them. And with that in mind, Ryan, you did an excellent job as always. Thank you, Taylor. I mean, I was looking for the right puns, but I guess I still couldn't find what I was looking for. Oh, no. I do have some pride in my work, though, and some desire to make the show I take back what I said. With or without you, Taylor. I take back what I said. Oh, Taylor, you're the sweetest thing. You're the sweetest thing. Anyway, uh, joining us, a man who loves analysing Spain's passes, including the ones they seem to be attempting from the penalty spot, Joe Lowry. Hello, sir. <laughs> oh, Ryan, that was so well done. I've been thinking... I've really been thinking, maybe we should have talked about this before we started recording. We need to start typing out Ryan's intro and tweeting it out, like and making it look like some sort of really old-timey poem, and tweeting one out every single day, because they're, they're so good, and I think people that don't listen to the show should listen to the show so they can hear it, and maybe that's how we get them coming in. It's for rhyming guy. Gotta love rhyming no, guy. No, hang great. on, no. Joe, Joe, no. If they don't listen to the show, they can't have it. It's not theirs. No. I won't allow Ryan- it. 
my only concern with having to track all those rhymes is that it would like eventually make me sort of nauseated and I'm not trying to get vertigo. <laughs> there you go. There you go, Ryan. I got you one. Yeah. And uh, I'm already the rhyming guy. I don't know how I feel about that. So The uh, rhyming guy. Hey. <laughs> I feel like only Graham appreciated my U2 reference there based on the reaction to that one. Thanks, Graham. There we go. There we You're go. welcome. You're uh, welcome, Taylor. <laughs> Rounding out the pack, the man whose voice you just heard there, he is the founder of the Akrafikibi fan club. Graham Rudvin, is that true? Uh, yes, I think it is. Certainly more of a fan club than Real Madrid and uh, Spain. <laughs> Akrafikibi born in Spain, of course. And yeah. that it feels like Spain could do with a, a new right back. Marcus Llorente, he ain't it at right back for them, as we discovered today. And Real Madrid as well could do with a, a new right back. So maybe there should be more people in the Akraf Hakimi fan club because, club because he is very good. He is indeed. No else is very good, Graham. Our Patreon, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you haven't joined in the fun already. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who's been supporting us throughout this World Cup. Uh, there's been extra podcasts, there's been videos, there still is, by the way. Uh, you get access to our Discord. So much banter in there, so much banter. And also, you got access to an image yesterday that Taylor posted on Patreon of his laptop um, stacked up on what I can only imagine are Charles Dickens' first editions. Uh, Taylor, they look like the most ancient books in the world you had yeah. there. What were they? Uh, I don't know. They are, uh, I think, from my grandparents' house that I threw into a box and have had in our attic. And we've moved multiple times since then. Uh, I think they are uh, a like a collection of children's books, but what they definitely are is the perfect height for elevating a laptop while remaining level. Oh, okay. Oh. Maybe they are um, children's books from Pepe's childhood. That's why they look like they do. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense. Oh, I loved seeing him score a goal. It gave me hope, guys. It gave me hope. I could yeah. still do it. There's like a year or two left, for sure, for me to make that big jump. <laughs> uh, that joke would hit better if he wasn't basically the same age as us, Taylor. <laughs> yes, that, that is, which, which does really, really upset me. Like in the same way that finding out that a movie that I thought came out like two years ago came out 20 years ago. That's always a good one too. Uh, but yes, the, the dogs are back with me today as they were yesterday. Uh, hopefully the they will remain as quiet. Hi, ladies. Um, one other thing I want to get out of the way. You just reminded me, Taylor. I went to a, a recital for my daughter, a musical recital yesterday, and there was drumming in it as well. Like some of the kids were doing drums to backing tracks. And one of them did a drumming backing track to Toxicity by System of a Down. And I was sitting there thinking, um, that song probably came out in 2001, 2002. So to that kid on the drums who is like 12, that's classic rock. That's, is, is that not depressing, Taylor? Uh, I mean, you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta roll with the times, <laughs> baby. You gotta stay fresh. It's all good. Am I hitting any of the catchphrases? I don't know how to feel about any of this, but I feel like we're now slowly airing into uh, three middle-aged men talking about aging, which is not yeah. what anybody wants to hear. They want to hear about... A one middle-aged man who refuses to age, not playing a game of soccer and how much fun that was. <laughs> Excellent seg. But let's talk about the other game first, Taylor. Yeah, Why right. don't we go to Morocco nil, Spain nil after extra time. Morocco winning, this can't be right, 3-0 on penalties. An audacious winning penalty from the aforementioned Akraf Hakimi, who was, as Graham mentioned, born in Madrid. And uh, the goalkeeper aforementioned as well, Bono, who played most, who played, has played most of his career in Spain, saving two of Spain's three penalties. This seemed like a totally deserved win for Morocco, Graham. They're in the quarterfinals for the first time ever. Only the fourth African team to reach that stage after Cameroon in mm. 1990, Senegal in 2002, and Ghana in 2010. May still be the first African side to reach the semis, but a cracking performance from them, Graham. 
Yeah, absolutely. And an incredible achievement. You could see the way this match was going to go from pretty early on. So Spain had plenty of the ball, as Spain always do. So they had 77% of possession to be, to be precise. But the defensive display from Morocco was incredible. The way that they swarmed Spain whenever they got into the final thirds. Um, Morocco, they were stepping off the Spanish centre-backs and they were setting traps for Spain in the, in the central area. And even when people are praising a good defensive display, there's a temptation to talk about things like grit and fight and working hard. And those things are important and they were important here for, for Morocco as well. But it's also about intelligence. Yeah. And, and there was plenty of that from, from Morocco in, the, in this match. They had their structure, they had their triggers and they had a game plan and they executed it very well. Even if the counter-attack never quite came together in terms of the final ball, there was a couple chances for Kadira in extra time or late in, in regulation time, which were particularly frustrating that he didn't take them. But Morocco will be a very difficult opponent in the quarterfinals. The, the, the approach from them, particularly in the first half, was was very proactive. It was designed to unsettle uh, Spain on the ball. They had seven players as a low block when Spain were trying to play through them centrally. And at that point of the match, Spain had no physical focal point. So it was all very pre uh, predictable. And part of, just to highlight another part of Morocco's game plan, there was a particular focus on getting close to, to Busquets and preventing him from having any real time in the ball. That was a job for Amrabat, who produced maybe one of the best individual performances of this World Cup so far. But you also had Amala and Onoe as the two number eights. It was a very compact approach. And sometimes when we talk about compact, we, we automatically think of passive, but that certainly wasn't the case for, case for Morocco. They were very aggressive. They were committing bodies forward on the break when they had the opportunity. And even though Spain had lots of the ball, and I think they maybe edged the expected goals and they did have opportunities, I felt just because of the intelligence and the way that Morocco planned out this game and then executed it, that they were the deserved winners in the end. Yeah, and Graham, I agree with so much of that. Graham, it wasn't even just Amrabat, the number six for Morocco in this game, who shut down Busquets, it was like a, a team effort, right? So it started from the front with Morocco, which isn't to say that they pressed, right? They maybe pressed occasionally, but they were really back in a low block. But the defensive block really did start with Josef Nesseri, right? So he was the, the, the furthest forward player, I suppose, but really all 10 players behind the ball constantly. And oftentimes you have a striker, and that, that's what Nesseri was in this game. You have a striker pressing up against one of the center backs. That's not at all what Morocco did in this game. They dropped their number nine back basically just to shadow Busquets. And by the, the end of the match, or at least by the end of regulation, Busquets had drifted so high up the field because he couldn't get on the ball. He drifted higher and higher up the field that he looked basically like a number 10. They could not get, Spain could not get Busquets touches, which hurt them a lot in this game. And that, that wasn't the only thing Morocco did well, but it really did start with that number nine. And then their two number eights would step forward occasionally to press the center back. So they did get some pressure on the ball as Spain passed it from side to side. But then they would they would make those runs towards the center backs in such a way that they still cut off access to Pedri and Gavi. And so Pedri and Gavi were pulling out wide, which is something that happens from time to time anyway. But Morocco did just such a good job for basically 120 minutes of making Spain's life miserable. And that's so hard to do. I, I can't even express. I've talked to coaches about this before. You you can defend, a lot of teams can defend in a low block well for 60 minutes or for 70 minutes. That that can happen at this point in, in global soccer. Teams know how to do that stuff. It's really hard to do it for 90 minutes. And it's really hard to do it for 120 minutes without ever actually hitting on the break to give yourself some, some breathing room. And Morocco never truly did that in this match. They deserve so much credit for hanging in there defensively, for making Spain's life miserable, and ultimately for getting the job done in the penalty shootout.
agree with everything you both have said and to to bring like two points together there uh when you're talking about like not hitting on the break graham talked earlier about how they knew how they wanted to set up they knew how they wanted to defend and they also knew like the exact ways in which they wanted to attack one was always through Nasiri, who i think was supposed to be the the kind of high outlet option but would would occasionally like drop in a la harry kane and try to like facilitate play that way and link up and then go and one of my favorite moments of this game i, I tweeted about it i think i messaged you guys about it was amrabat uh, winning a ball or like receiving a loose ball, he turns and he plays it forward to where uh, Anasiri is supposed to be, and he's not. He he's held the run for a second, and Amrabat loses his mind that that outlet wasn't there, that it didn't come off. He yells at him. You can see his frustration. He turns to the bench and does a like get him off the pitch, and I think uh, <laughs> Anasiri is off like seven minutes later or something like that. Like it, it shows the sort of expectation and the discipline that a game like this requires to be able to handle the attacking ability and passing ability of Spain. So I, I just thought that was such a good moment of when those counterattacks were there and not taken. Sometimes it's going to be difficult in a breakaway. Uh, I, I did enjoy uh, the one where Laporte catches up and it felt like he had no business doing that. Everyone, including the player, were confused by how he had done that. But I also thought anytime Morocco really didn't do themselves favors, uh, they were held accountable for those actions. That was a great moment, Taylor, as was that Buffel turn on, was it Lorente near the start of the game? Yeah. It wasn't a turn. He just like the ball stayed still for like ten seconds. He was just like shifting left and right. His body moved. The ball didn't. Yeah, it was incredible, wasn't it, Graham? And Laurenti moved. Yeah, <laughs> he certainly did. Yeah, I mean that that Buffal was a very effective outlet in this game for Morocco. Um, if I'm turning it to talk a little bit about Marcus Laurenti, he was probably the biggest surprise in that Spain lineup. Was him not just being in the team but being in at right back. And I'm a big fan of Marcus Llorente. There was that one season for Atletico Madrid when all of a sudden he became one of the best attacking midfielders around. However, somewhere along the line, someone came up with the idea of using him at right back. And I think it was Diego Simeone. And I can't understand why it has been persisted with for so long. It is just not his position. He doesn't have the defensive instincts for it. He gets quite square on, which is what I think happened in that moment with, with Buffal. And Morocco exposed that in the first half through Buffal, who was making him dance every time he went up against him down the left. And there was just so much space for Morocco to get the ball into uh, the box down that side. And Morocco are so strong in, in the wide areas in, in particular that it was peculiar because they obviously have on the right side they have Hakimi. It was peculiar that Lucho was willing to give them so much time and space in those areas. And, and that was a real problem for, for Spain when Morocco did have the ball. It wasn't like Spain. Obviously, if Spain are executing their game plan perfectly, they're counter-pressing, they're suffocating Morocco so that they're not getting out at all. And Morocco had that option every time they got the ball. And yes, they didn't have a lot of the ball, but it just gave them those moments of relief and gave them the, the opportunity to actually threaten Spain on, on, on the counter-attack. So mm. that was a difficult area for, for Spain and, and, a, and a good area for Morocco. And Joe, just another beat on Morocco. We've got to give credit to Bono in goal. Yeah. Uh, six and a half hours into the tournament, four games in, no opponent has beaten him yet. Just an own goal against Canada. That's, that's credit to him in the back line. Taylor Graham, did I miss any U2 references there that I was supposed to get? Or are we good? Can Not I, that can I was I aware of. Maybe some of their newer stuff that nobody listened to. Maybe some of, some of the tracks that were on that album that appeared on everyone's iPhone a few years ago, <laughs> okay. but none of the tracks that I know. Good. That's all I needed to know. Thank you for clearing me, Graham. Now I can talk about how good he was. Yeah, I mean, un unbeaten in this game, right? And Morocco defensively have been solid in this tournament. They shut out Belgium, right? Yeah, 0-2 in that game. So they, they win that match 2-0. They shut out Belgium. They come out here and shut out Spain. Two teams with an undeniable amount of attacking and, and midfield talent. I know Belgium are not the same team that they, they used to be. But 
He does a really good job in this game, Bono, of being in the right spots on the penalty shootout. He didn't have too much to do, really, in open play outside of maybe the last stretch of regulation and extra time when Spain are threatening a little bit more. But one thing I don't understand, and we talked about this yesterday with Japan, Taylor, is how poor Spain's penalties were. Like, I want to give credit to Morocco, and and we should do that, and I think we have, and I want to give credit to Bono, and, and we should do that, and I think we have. But Spain's penalty kicks were dreadful. Yet again, and I, maybe there's a psychological aspect here that I don't understand of your first teammate misses, and then you feel like there's so much more pressure to make it, and that affects something. I don't know what it is. But Taylor, I mean, the penalties again today, just absolutely dreadful from a team. I, I went back and watched that shootout, Joe, to see if there was a like commonality between them. And there wasn't really. But what I was hoping would be the case is that uh, the, the goalkeeper yesterday moved a bunch because today Bono moved so much. And I've been trying to figure out how it is that without leaving their line early, these goalkeepers Did he move are in able- mysterious ways, Taylor? Oh, I hate that I set that up. Even if even if it was such a rare one, it still really upsets me. Now I have to be very mindful of what I'm saying. There's no chance. I'm going to trigger another one here in a minute. Uh, but what, what uh, Bono did really, really well is he moves along the line without cheating, obviously. He's never like called back for, for having his feet off. But he moves and stops and really exaggerates going back the other way. And I think if you're the taker who's running up about to take it, it looks like, oh, I'm seeing him go come back the other way. So he's fainted to one side, come back the other way. And so I should then put it. So if like the keeper fainted to his left and then seemed like he was going back to his right, I'll put it to the keeper's left. But Bono always continued his forward momentum to that left, or I guess sideways momentum to the left, while making it seem like he was going back across. And I think every single time the Spanish t- taker went for placement and not power and was just trying to pass it to the opposite side and fell for it every single time. Um, that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, but uh, Livakovic yesterday basically just dove one way or the other one. So not quite the explanation, but I do think it's interesting to me that goalkeepers seem to have found a new way to sort of gain an advantage now that they can't come off their line, now that there's not about that way to pounce. It seems like there's a different way to handle moving laterally along that line while still making yourself look as big as possible. So that was really interesting. And then it stood in stark contrast to what Unai Simone was doing, which was leaving early every single time and always going the same way. If he leaned left, if he cheated left, he would dive left. Uh, Uh, And that uh, was the case for every single take. The one he saves, the taker goes where he shouldn't have. And I wonder if that was him like bucking instructions or if he hadn't been informed. But it stands out to me that uh, Hakim Ziyech goes right down the middle instead of trying to gamble and make sure. Because the first one, he he leans to his right and dives to his right. The second one was Ziyech. He leans to his left and dives to his left. Ziyech goes right down the middle. And I think by the end of it, uh, Atraf Hakimi has decided he's going to dive. I know he is. And that's, I think, where some of the decision to throw that Panenka in came from is basically as long as he leans one way, he's not going to stand in the middle. And that is exactly how that played out. So I think really good goalkeeping and really poor taking from Spain, but also really good penalty taking and a little bit too eager from Unai Simon. Really poor from Spain, especially considering Lucho said before this game that He'd set homework for every player to take a thousand penalties yeah. before this World Cup, which makes me think maybe less penalty training. I I, I don't know. Well, it's, so Spain have actually lost yeah. their their last three World Cup shootouts in a row, and they've lost four in total, which is more than any other country. I don't I don't know how much that matters when you're talking about historically going back decades, but nonetheless, it's 
it's fairly interesting. And they, actually, they were all thinking, Graham, about losing Euro '96 to the English in the penalty shootout. They, of course, it was in yeah, the back that, of all of their that's minds. still in their mind. Yeah, yeah. they've they've won what the Euros twice and a World Cup since then, but they're Pedro still. Pedro you've never Euro even seen that game, game, Ryan. Hate to break it to you. Really hate to break it to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the way it should stay, Joe. Don't watch it. Um, but yeah, just another. This is this is a really irrelevant I guess fact but a weird quirk of Spain at the World Cup so they haven't won a knockout game since the 2010 final when they won it and then to further that Italy haven't won a knockout game since the 2006 final when they won it and Germany haven't won a knockout game since the 2014 final when they won it so the moral of the story is don't win a World Cup. That Scotland have been on the right yeah. lines all right. along here. Don't win a World Cup because you'll never win another knockout game at a World Cup ever again on the basis of Italy, Spain and Germany. There we go. Sound advice from Graham Rutherford. I'm, I'm a bit baffled as to when these players were supposed to do their homework of a thousand penalties. Like They had five days before, like, after the league's finished and when they got to Qatar. When, when were they supposed to be taking them, Graham? Hey, Ronaldo, Ronaldo t- did 2,000. Uh, I'll tell you uh, that much. He, he doesn't sleep. He just does them in the uh, like hyperbaric chamber. Honestly, uh, Honestly, I wonder, and this is very much a half-baked idea, but I do wonder with like how good technology is now, how much everything is tracked. If if I'm if I'm a person who's practicing penalties, I know that they can track like the direction I go, and there's going to be statistics kept. Even if it's in practice, I feel like clubs are still tracking it. And I wonder if some of the like advanced data collection means that they are more than ever just going off of what the goalkeeper does, and it's more about reading the goalkeeper and that little hop to try to throw the goalkeeper off. Because if you go top left every single time or 80% of the time, chances are the goalkeeper is going to know that somehow because we've seen notes on water bottles and notes on the backs of gloves and whatever it may be. So I wonder if players are more so trying to read the goalkeeper and making it like a heads-up duel. And I think that favors the goalkeeper because it's just less pressure on them to save it than there is for the taker to score it. Indeed. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Spain. And of course, we'll dig into Portugal's massive win over Switzerland. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Taylor Rockwell, in this game, uh, the Spain-Morocco game I'm still talking about here, Spain had 926 passes, three shots on target, Two of those were penalties. They had one shot in target in normal time <laughs> from 926 passes, 76% possession and eight corners. So, and as I mentioned in my intro, quite a lot of the passes are not penetrating, shall we say. Um, and Spain have this style in their DNA, don't they? The, the endless yeah. passing, the tiki-taka, the, the Spanish art project, as it was called a little <laughs> while ago, where passing was more important than goals. It seems like, how, how do I phrase this question? Is like is the, has the time passed for Tiki Taka in this style? They need to find something else. Can I just jump in with a very quick stat? So after Spain won seven 0 against Costa Rica, and yes, this is from Duncan can. Alexander on Twitter, no, they can't. averaged one thousand three hundred fifty six passes per goal in their next three games. <laughs> that seems like a poor ratio. <laughs> That's a lot of work, isn't it? Before having a shot, <laughs> it, it also just like it doesn't really. It doesn't really click for me. And I wouldn't say no, like the time has passed or anything like that. I would just say that I, I think it's really difficult to switch from that to, uh-oh, it's no-no. Our, our opponent is being defensive. We got to change it up. We got to be more aggressive. And I think you could see that in a way with the substitution of, of Almorata. You can bring on that player who is theoretically meant to do that. But it requires, to some extent, like a complete change in the way your team is thinking and playing or... They don't really change the way they're thinking and playing. And you just have this player who's now fitting into the same system, but not even doing it as well. That's not a shot at Murata. It's just to say that I think where I think Spain sometimes get in their own way is that they can't really pivot out of that system if it's not working. And it ends up with, even if you are making these aggressive changes, I couldn't b- believe that Ansu Fati and Alex Balde coming in didn't have a massive impact. I thought it would. I thought for sure that was going to be the story is you bring in these youngsters, they're direct, they take people on, they make things happen, they create chaos. And they also, in my mind, sort of regressed to the overall mean of the way Spain were playing. So I, I think at the end of the day, I just kicked myself because I had it as uh, this game going to penalties, but Spain winning. And only when we got to penalties did I think, I don't really have a reason for why I assumed Spain would win at penalties aside from their Spain and now I realize that that was a stupid thing to assume because here we are here we are indeed Joe is it telling that Lucho Enrique didn't seem that mad at at full time he was sort of laughing and and shaking the hands of all the Morocco players he seemed like he was in good spirits too good a spirits for someone who'd been uh, dumped out by an underdog yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to what's going on in Luis Enrique's head in that moment, but I, I do think there is a tie-in here with how he thinks about soccer and how this performance unfolded for Spain. I think if you ask Luis Enrique, like, is there anything you could have done differently in this game? He would probably say no, or or at least he might point to 
maybe bringing on Alvaro Morata five minutes earlier. He still comes in in the 60-something minute, which is pretty early for as far as subs go in a game that could go on to extra time. Morata comes in in the 63rd minute. That's what it is. And, and Nico Williams comes on in the 75th minute. Those are the two players that I think had the biggest impact for Spain off the bench because they did enable them to go, not, not to plan B, but to like plan A.1 or A.2, right? It just of ever so slightly tweaking the way that they play to have a different profile number nine in the box, to have a slightly different profile wide player on the right side, enabling them to be a little bit more direct and to have uh, more of a focal point to play off of or or to play balls into in the box in Alvaro Morata. But I think Luis Enrique is relatively okay with how this game was played, not with how it turned out, but in soccer and in these knockout games, there's only so much you can do, right? We, we praise Morocco early on, and, and we should. Spain did create more. They created better chances. They created uh, they had a lot more of the ball, which means that the other team can't have the ball and can't hurt you. Spain controlled this game. Now, they, they were not dominant, but I think they were probably the slightly better team. It just so happens that in the way that this game unfolded, Morocco got the victory, and I think Luis Enrique probably can sleep okay at night knowing that his convictions were carried out on the field. We don't have to agree with that or not. I, I tend to agree with Luis Enrique. I, I really like watching the Spain team play. I think they did a lot of good things and are still one of the best teams in the world. None of that changes for me with this loss. But yeah, I, I imagine that reaction will create some dissent, certainly. I, I've vouched for Spain quite a bit through this tournament and before the tournament started as well. But I am stuck somewhere between loving them and hating them as a neutral watching them. So when it all works and they're allowed to play their natural game, it is amazing to watch. We saw that against Costa Rica and we also saw it in periods of the of the match against Germany as well. However, it feels like to play at that level, to be successful for Lucho's system and his approach to, to work, at least in 2022, everything needs to be perfect. And when the execution is a little bit off and they don't have much vertical threat as they as they didn't have in this game, and they come up against a compact opponent like Morocco in this match as well, it can be very tedious to watch and it can be quite ineffective. And I thought this match was a thesis statement on the whole control versus dominance discussion because Spain had control, but to my eye, they, they didn't have dominance. And that's at the, at the top of the show, I said, I thought Morocco deserved to win, even though they only have, what, 23% of, of the ball. They executed their game plan better than Spain did. It was a bad matchup for Spain from a tactical point of view. I saw Tim Vickery pointing that out before the match on, on Twitter and he kind of did a little bit of a, um, not so much a victory lap, but kind of pointing out that he always thought that after the match and, and it proved to be the case. There will be a debate in Spain after this match about whether this is too pure of a tiki-taka style of play. It felt like Spain had kind of evolved past that slightly and then they've they've gone back to kind of the pure Luis Aragonés um, tiki-taka style this is probably the most extreme tiki-taka style that you get in, in football club or international football at this point in time. And Lucho, I think part of maybe why he doesn't seem to care so much is it's a bit of an open secret he's going to take a, a club job. I think this was his last tournament as Spain manager. So there will be the chance for Spain to change things a bit. And I'll be very interested to see what Spain do next because this core of young players that they have are so talented. They'll be back. They're not going away anywhere. And I want to see whether there's another system. I expect that what they'll do is they'll keep the principles of everything that's in place just now, but maybe just evolve it slightly through players like Alex Balde or Nico Williams. I can see Nico Williams becoming an important player for Spain on that right side. And maybe he's the one that provides that little bit of vertical threat and creates space for the likes of Pedri and Gavi. But I think in hindsight, given that this is probably the bookend on Lucho's Spain career as manager, it's probably slightly too pure 
when at these yeah. international tournaments, a one one bad match like this one can cost you, and that has been the case for Spain at last two t- major tournaments. Okay, so Graham, I, I know we've got a seven goal game to get to, so I'm really sorry for nerding out, but I, I love this discussion, right, about how soccer should or should not be played. I think that's some of the most interesting discussions we can have at a World Cup or just in general. Graham, I, I got two questions for you, and you can pick whichever one you want, or you don't have to answer either one of them. The first question is, do you think, you mentioned that, that Spain have to get everything right to win and that the margins are really small with how they play. Do you think their margins are smaller than, say, France or Brazil or even a team like England? Like, do you think there's a distinction? They play very differently. Do you think the margins are smaller? The other question, shoot, I should have written this down because now I'm not, Oh, here it is. The other question is, <laughs> what could Spain have done differently in this game, right? With how deep Morocco are sitting? Is there something they could have changed, right? Maybe I, I kind of tried to answer this earlier. I don't know really what you shift. Yeah, yeah. Taylor, you can answer. Graham, you can answer. I don't know. I'm just curious. So, so second part of that question, I don't really have an answer at this point. They seem to bring on the players that, to Taylor's point, I thought would make a change. Ansu yeah. Fati in particular. I thought Ansu Fati in general, we probably should have seen more of him at this World Cup. He's a, he's a bit of a difference maker for Spain. He, he gives them something slightly different in final third. But he didn't make much of an impact in this game. I thought Morocco's game plan was pretty much perfect. So I don't really have an answer for that. I'd need to think about it a little bit more. The, the answer to your first question is, yes, I do think their margin for error is smaller than... France or you know just purely from if we're looking at France for example the pace that they have through players like Dembele and and Mbappe you have that option to basically flip the ball in behind and and uh, you know the margin for error there is is much larger when you're relying on kind of a physical attribute of a player like Mbappe for Spain they operate in in such tight spaces that things like their touch needs to be absolutely on point and I felt like it wasn't in this match another factor in this game was I thought the pitch was slightly bobbly and when you're when you play when you play the way Spain do I thought that was that was kind of disrupting them as well obviously Morocco was a bigger factor in disrupting them but yes I do think their margin for error is is, is slightly um is smaller than it is for some of the other nations and in the end I think that has cost them is their margin for error smaller grain because of the now this is going to sound weird but the quality of their players like Tiki Taka of old it was maybe Devavir as a number nine and you had Chavi behind him and maybe they don't have those kind of players anymore I still think they've got the players to, to execute that game plan. So if you look at that midfield, you know, Gavi, Pedri, and obviously Busquets is the overlap between those two generations. Um, I take your point, and they are lacking. It's a bit of the USMNT problem. It's relative, of course, because Alvaro, Alvaro Morata plays at like Champions League level and is a good striker, but he is not guaranteed to finish the chances that he he's presented, essentially. Yeah. I think his conversion rate is among the worst of some of the strikers at this tournament. I saw a... a a list from the Athletic or something that had him quite low in that in that list. But I take your point that this Spain team is not as talented as the the one that won the World Cup in 2010. But I still think they have the the profile of player to to make it work. Someone like Ferran Torres, for example, I'm a big fan of Ferran Torres. I know he has his critics, but I think his appreciation of space. I think he actually could develop into a bit of a David Villa figure for Spain. But it feels this Spain team feels like the one before the next great Spain team. It feels like they're still developing. Gavi is what, like 12 years old yeah. or something like that? <laughs> um, so as it, back to my point, they will be back. I'm just interested to see how they evolve things from this point. Yeah. I think my, my final little thing would just be that uh, I think it's also a system that like, if you get up 1-0 on an opponent, 
uh, I mean, obviously, this is not like breaking new ground here. But if you're ahead, it's better. But I think with Spain, if the earlier you can get up, the more the team has to come out of their shape. But also the kind of more unexpected the game is going to be. I think as the game goes on, if you still continue to possess the ball and move it but not get any shots, it just gets not necessarily easier for teams to play against it, but it, there's just more patterns. There's more recognition. There's more, okay, he's going there. I know to go here. And you start to, I mean, when you move the ball left to right 800 times, the opposition is going to be able to respond to it. And so I think there is sort of that that requirement that they be able to add in those difference makers or find a different way through just to keep the kind of disruption going. And that's where I agree with Graham that I think Kylian Mbappe makes that difference for France. I think Lionel Messi made that difference for Barcelona. He can score in any given moment after a dribble, after a shot from distance and and I do feel like the Spain team don't have that player who can sort of score when it doesn't seem likely fire that shot in from distance as Messi has now done twice in this tournament for Argentina I think that can also be uh, a way to sort of break through teams that don't want to be broken through sorry I, I'm just fixated on this idea so I, I want to go back to something that Graham said about about France's margins being bigger basically and maybe that's an unfair characterization Graham do you think France do a better job of breaking down Morocco in this same game, if the game was played out similarly, do you think France or Brazil, like, do you think there's another team in the world that does, like, better at that than what Spain did today? Um, yeah, probably. Because okay. they ha- I feel like Spain don't have the options of some other teams. So, again, like, France... But but then we we're talking less about a... style. Now now we're talking less about style and more about players, right, to get to what no, Ryan's but it's, talking about. it's related about. to style. When I talk about options, I'm talking about going using a, a, a different aspect of a game plan. So, you know, Mbappe or Dembele gives you that vertical threat, but you also have players um, for France who can control a game. In the center. We don't really see that, that all that often from France. Maybe England is actually a better example when we're talking about this. They do have players like Saka, and, and they can play to their strengths, or they can control a game through midfield platform, as we saw at the Euros, Phillips and Rice, who can do that in the centre of the pitch. Whereas I, f- I don't feel like Spain have quite developed that toggle yet. So yeah, they bring on Ansu Fati and Nico Williams, but they don't really change their game plan to suit those players. We saw it a little bit in the Costa Rica game, but the opposition was so, I guess, inferior in that match that it, maybe it was slightly easier. But against Morocco, they weren't able to toggle in that way. And I think the best international teams are able to do that. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about Portugal. That's one of the things that's kind of changed my mind on Portugal tonight was we've seen Portugal be Fernando's, Fernando Santos Portugal that grind out results and do that international soccer thing. But tonight we saw a different side of them. Like I haven't seen that from Spain at any point over the last, what, three years under Lucho? And I've watched quite a bit of them in qualifying. We saw them at the Euros last, last year. They play the same way in every single match. And I guess, yes, there's a strength in that. And I vouch for them early in the tournament that that gives them a platform in every single game. But when you get punched in the nose, what's the say, what's the saying, Taylor? Like when you get punched in the nose, Everybody's everyone's got, got a plan it. until they get punched in the nose. That's yeah. The Spain, when they get punched in the nose, I, I don't really know what their plan is beyond that. And I think other teams have that option, whether it's down to, down to players or whether it's down to the being able to toggle the, the style and the approach. Well, Spain has certainly been punched in the nose tonight. I wouldn't want to be watching that Il Chiringuito show. That guy must be going crazy tonight. Maybe the, the <laughs> clips of that will all be on, online. Tonight is the best the night of his life, Ryan. Come on now. That's I'm right. just happy he, he, that we chose to record this on video so I knew Ryan was awake for that entire conversation because otherwise I am slightly <laughs> concerned we would have put him to sleep. Uh, l- last night I was in a mood, uh, in, in a strange mood because I was very tired. I'm much more refreshed tonight, Taylor. Hey. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for conducting it. Um, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about that game that had seven goals in it. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention to Portugal 6, Switzerland 1. Ronaldo's replacement, Gonzalo Ramos, getting three goals and an assist in this one. Ronaldo must have been delighted with that. He was benched from the start. Of course, he came on later. But uh, Fernando Santos reportedly unimpressed with Ronaldo's behaviour as he left the pitch versus Korea when he was withdrawn early from that one. Um, Taylor, where has this Portugal side been? They, they showed up tonight. Yeah. They're going to win the World Cup. That's where they've been. Cool. I don't know All if right. that answers that question, but that's Thanks. what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I thought. I thought if they if they get past Switzerland, then they will win this whole World Cup. And now I fully believe they're going to. I they didn't serious. It. Yeah, I didn't see it because of Ooh. this switch. But yes, I said like that this Portugal team reminds me of that Euro team that just grinds their way to a win, that finds a way to win, that has the individual ability, but also at times the like the team chemistry and spirit. That's what I think gutted them through that tournament. And I think that could have been the case here, except that in this game, we see Portugal sort of unlocked and how dangerous they can be across the board. They can score goals through possession. They could score goals in, I think, five seconds from winning the ball to scoring. They can uh, like they can sit deep and then attack you. They can possess in or around your box. There's so many different aspects to this Portugal team. It's basically the exact opposite of, I think, what we were just talking about with Spain. Uh, and and that was before even like Rafael Rafael Lau comes on and scores uh, like a candidate for one of the best goals of the World Cup so he far. He made that so, look so ridiculously really easy. <laughs> he really, really, really did. And it was just another sort of notch in the like, yep, this team is super duper good. And we'll see what happens. The, the question remains now that Ronaldo has been benched and come on, is he going to be a happy presence in the locker room? Does this sort of bring him back on side? Or does it go the Man United way and we see him doing an interview with Piers sure. Morgan? I'm not really sure which one it will be, but I think that will also play a part in whether or not this Portugal team have continued success. Surely he takes the message by now that he's had basically the same thing happen to him at club and country. You know that (laughs) meme of the... the, Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know that meme of the flying cars and the futuristic society and the joke is uh, X if Y didn't happen? That meme, but for Portugal without Ronaldo tonight, that was essentially what happened. Yeah, the... The performance from Portugal, like the fluidity and the, and the movement of that front line without Ronaldo was fantastic. And it's, it's probably the first time I can really remember under Fernando Santos enjoying watching Portugal, certainly for, for, for 90 minutes. Um, it just felt like there was a real balance to the performance. And, and Switzerland were poor, and I think we'll come on to some of their defending. Joe, I think you maybe have some notes on that. Hmm. But the 4-2-3-1 suited they, everyone. They defended there was in a- this game? Ah, there it is. Well, Taylor just did my bit, so I don't need to do it later. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the the formation suited everyone. There was a fluidity from players like Yao Felix and Bernardo Silva. You had width from Dallo. You had a focal point in Gonzalo Ramos, oh. who scores a hat-trick in this game. So maybe I'm going a bit over the top with my praise, but it was just very enjoyable to see Portugal play like this because everyone knew they could play this way because they have the players. But I wasn't sure we would ever see it under Santos. So maybe it turns out Santos wasn't the problem. It was Ronaldo. Yeah, and, and credit him for making that call, right? That's not an easy call to make. I don't envy having to be the person to tell 
Cristiano Ronaldo that he's not starting his 87,000th straight game for Portugal or whatever it is. But it was the right call. And I think Manchester United fans have known that for a long time. Probably Juve fans have known that even before that. As people who have watched soccer on this planet for the last couple of years, we've all known that's the right call. It doesn't make it easier to do. So credit to Fernando Santos, which is not something I really envision saying coming into this tournament. Also credit to Gonzalo Ramos, who had an unreal performance at this World Cup. His first start of the tournament, 21 years old, playing for Benfica, came up through the Portugal youth ranks and played at Benfica U19, Benfica B. He already has 80 appearances and 28 goals for Benfica's first team, dating back to, I believe, 2020 to now. He is an incredible talent and showed every bit of why he is so highly regarded around soccer circles right now. I mean, he was an exceptional focal point for Portugal in this match, finding the right spots, just like a, a pure a pure striker, right? Getting into the spots to score goals. And that first goal he scores is ridiculous. It's a Portugal throw-in on the, the left side. João Felix finds Gonzalo Ramos, and Ramos turns and scores this absurd shot that my words won't do justice with his left foot. It has so much power behind it. And that's Boom. the first sign in this game that Portugal were about to run over Switzerland. And and I do think Switzerland were dreadful, and we can talk about that later. But, man, credit to Portugal, credit to Fernando Santos for making that change. This team became so, so quickly like an actual World Cup contender in a way that I, I'm just not sure they were with Cristiano Ronaldo on the field. It's It was a really impressive performance from Ramos. It's just a shame he's going to be murdered in his sleep by a teammate like, <laughs> over the next few nights. Yeah, just wait until he finds out, yeah. uh, or Ronaldo finds out, that Ramos has scored more goals from por- for Portugal in World Cup knock- knockout matches after 17 minutes than Ronaldo has in 514 minutes played o- over the course of his career. Yeah, not ideal Graham has pulled out like eight really high-quality stats on the yeah. fly throughout this show. Great work, Graham. Your Twitter scroll is getting better and better. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I can now I can now consume thousands of tweets in a matter of seconds. <laughs> I've perfected it. Graham's can we also talk for a moment? Tweets. So yeah. <laughs> that is what I picture his ceiling to be. We know the rest of his house is just TV screens. The ceiling is just an interactive Minority <laughs> Report menu. Um, I also I enjoy, I love the Gonzalo Ramos uh, opener, Joe. That was a point zero four xg yeah. on that one. So oh, maybe finish. again that also illustrates kind of what you uh you need if you're playing against a team that's trying to bunker and not let you through uh but also his assist for the rafael guerrero goal uh a no-look assist will always have a, a special place in my heart even if guerrero is pretty wide open uh and that passes on just that little disguise always makes me thrilled now joe it, this certainly did look like a portugal side that had the handbrake off and were having a lot of fun out there but how much was Switzerland responsible for that handbrake being taken off? It didn't seem like they put up much of a defense. Yeah, I think Switzerland put on one of the worst performances I've seen at this World Cup so far. And I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say, given that they let in six goals. But even when the game was 1-0 or 2-0, all the signs were there of a six-goal win for Portugal, or, or at least a multi-goal win. And it never really seemed like Switzerland did much of anything about it. So they're in this sort of fluid back three, back four shape. I don't know if anybody had a hard time making out what Switzerland were trying to do in this game. Uh, That's because they didn't know what they were trying to do, right? Taylor was nodding into the camera, which does make me feel better because I had to go back and rewatch. I got to start saying that out loud. This is me nodding. This is me nodding. I'll I'll narrate it next time. Taylor nodding. Mm. Taylor nods. Beautiful. I mean, they were were all over the place. So they were trying to man mark a little bit in midfield. So so Sosao and Freuler... And even Granit Xhaka at times were man-marking either Bruno Fernandes or Bernardo Silva or Octavio or, or Carvalho, depending on the moment. But the structure for Switzerland was like non-existent. Those were really the only main players that I noticed man-marking. The back line was deep. Shakiri and Mbolo and, and Vargas 
At times were high of Argus, other times was back deeper. There was just no method to Switzerland's madness, and they got run through and run over, over and over again. The the best moment that I can bring up to explain is it's the 32nd minute. It's 1-0 Portugal at this moment. So the game is still very much in play for Switzerland. Portugal have the ball. They play right through the midfield, just directly through it. Like the midfield's not even there at this point. They play the ball over to João Felix on the left side, kind of in the left half space area, if I remember correctly. And he then plays this teasing ball into the box. It's a great ball. It goes out for a corner. And then Pepe scores that thumping header to make it 2-0. And at that point, the game is pretty much over because Switzerland had not showed that much in the attack. They had not shown any ability to contain Portugal. Then you get towards the end of the first half. The match is starting to get out of hand. And they're just so they're so slow, Switzerland, in this match. Jao Felix gets on the ball in midfield, and he runs through four of them, four Swiss players, right before halftime. Yeah. They, they weren't oh, counter-pressing yeah. Switzerland. They weren't counter-pressing. They were like in their structured, so uh, sort of high-pressing slash what are we doing, but we're supposed to defend, <laughs> I guess, shape. And he runs right between all of them and gets the ball forward. It, it, was, it was honestly shocking that this is a performance we saw in a World Cup knockout round. It was just that bad, which is really the only reason, Taylor, why I'm not like all the way where you are about Portugal being World mm-hmm. Cup favorite. I want to see one more game. Give me one more game against Morocco, which I think will be a much harder game than this. If Portugal come out and pull out a similar performance against a much better and well-structured team, then I'll concede my Spain argument, by the way, and I'll say Portugal are going to win this whole darn thing. And I should be clear, I'm not saying that because like I saw them tonight and like this is the Portugal team we've been waiting for. I'm just locked in with the, if they beat Switzerland, they are just going to be a team that finds their way through games and they will win that way. Uh, but I do look forward to them just destroying teams with Jao Felix running 60 yards because I thought that was very, very fun. I also thought this was the opposite performance that I saw from Switzerland against Serbia, a game that was obviously had like like off-field uh, issues bleeding into it. Uh, and so I wonder if maybe Switzerland was just more up for that one for whatever reason. But they looked so much more cohesive in the way they wanted to play, so much more unified in the way they pressed and then set off and then pressed again. When they won the ball back, how tight they were in possession, how tidy they were, they didn't give it up cheaply. I've watched Briel Embolo because he's been in the scouting network for a very long time. And this has kind of been who he is early on, and then he kind of reached new levels where he was much more consistent, much better in front of goal, much better in his hold-up play and passing. This felt like sort of the Briel Embolo of a few years ago, where it was just loose touches, it wasn't completing passes when they needed to be, and like we talked about with Morocco, you need that outlet to be there. He was he was that in their last game against Serbia. He was taking on four guys at once. But in this one, I, I just don't think there was as much... Uh, cohesiveness to the way they play and and I do think that goes back to they game plan for a Portugal team with Ronaldo in it that was going to be slower and more deliberate on the ball slower to build out not nearly as individual not nearly as good carrying the ball forward out of pressure and and in some ways the way they set up like I, I saw in moments them having three back uh, and then Fernandez getting very forward on the right, uh, or maybe I've got that wrong, but it, I think it was, yeah, Fernandez on the right, yeah, and then you'd have a back three, and then really it was Shaka in the middle, and then everybody else pushed forward. I thought Froehler was like, oh, he must be deep too. Nope, he's further forward than Shakiri. and I think they thought, we can go at Portugal, we can get something from them early, then they will have to come at us, we can sit deeper, and we can make their life difficult, and I think they just game plan for the wrong Portugal and paid accordingly. So Taylor's quite bullish on Portugal's chances. Then yeah. uh, Jason Beers tweeted to us uh, tonight. 
Do you change your answer to the listener question you had recently about the next country to win a World Cup and will it be this year? Graham, I think we said it would either be... I think Portugal is our leading candidate, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, from that listener question. Yeah, we did question. say that. I would now change my answer to Morocco. They're going to win it this year. Oh, OK. <laughs> that would be fun. No. Um, I want to see that reporter I'm, I'm celebrate with, with, if, if they do. That was, that was another highlight, if you didn't see that one on Twitter, of the Moroccan reporter absolutely going uh, wild when they win the shootout. I, I, I need more oh, content from that. him because it made me very, very, very happy. Was he going yeah, wild I'm- with journalistic impartiality? <laughs> yeah, but that's what I love about it. It's like, I, I, I know that that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a calm and stoic press, press box, and we're all supposed to wear our fedoras and have our press slips in, in, in the band of the hat. But if that were me, I'd be doing the exact same thing. If that were the United States and they beat the Dutch on penalties or beat Spain on penalties, I would be cheering just as much as I was. Uh, Felipe Cardenas mm. sat next to me at the last U.S. game and watched me try to contain myself from cheering <laughs> and really struggle to do so. So I, I felt that man's energy for sure. Yeah, somehow it feels more acceptable at a World Cup. I don't know whether it's because if you're from a country and you're in a foreign country and the press pack you're with from your homeland, the country you're sporting, you're you're all kind of in the same boat. There's not any division sort of there. So it somehow feels a little bit more acceptable. I I will say, Graham, I'll draw the line. In in the 2014 World Cup, I was in the press room quite a lot after games and many journalists wore the jersey of the team. Uh, I, I'm mm. all for like cheering and being happy that your nation has gone through, but wearing the jersey in the press room—that that—that's a Ryan no-no. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. I, I'd maybe be wearing a jersey, just not necessarily of that team. It would just be whatever jersey <laughs> I, I want to wear that day. Like I'm wearing Belgium today. There you go. Um, yeah, they were they were not my favorite team at this World Cup. But back to the question, <laughs> I in terms of oh, yeah. whether we think there was a question in yeah. there. <laughs> Are Portugal or the Dutch going to win this World Cup? I'm with Joe. I want to see. I want to see one more game from Portugal before I kind of count them among the favourites. I think Morocco. Um, Taylor, you made a point um, about Switzerland setting up to play Portugal as they played the, this tournament so far. Morocco will obviously have watched this game. They'll know, kind of, have a better idea of what to expect, and so that's going to be a stiffer challenge. If Portugal do tonight to Morocco what they did to Switzerland, uh, do against Morocco what they did tonight against Switzerland. Then I maybe change my opinion and I elevate them up with the favourites like uh, Brazil and, and, and France, I think is probably my top tier at the moment. All right, Joe, if you had to call Morocco versus Portugal right now, which way would you call it? I mean, I'd call it Portugal, but I wouldn't be surprised either way, Ryan, which is a credit to Morocco and what they've done in this tournament. I, I am pleasantly surprised by them. They deserve a ton of credit for their run so far. Today's games were so good. Like I, I didn't expect we would get Morocco making it through at all. So the fact that we have that underdog is great. And I didn't expect Portugal would would turn on their head and look completely different and win by five goals. I mean, what a this might be my favorite day of the World Cup so far. Yeah. One of the best days. It was it was so good and I cannot wait for that quarterfinal. It's been a good round of 16 as well. And I, I saw today that there, it's actually the, the highest scoring round of 16 of any World Cup. So there are 28 goals scored in the last 16 of this World Cup. And the previous record was 26 in 1986. So wow. it does kind of feel like the tournament has started to come to the boil. I thought it started off quite slowly. And then match day three of the group stages was insane. Yeah. And then this was pretty entertaining as well. It was indeed. Well, Morocco versus Portugal is l'appétit for the big game on Saturday. England versus France is a later kickoff. Uh, this one coming on before, of course. Uh, Taylor, you, you're, I presume you think Portugal are going to get through that then? Yeah, 
They're going to win it all. You heard it here first. Portugal versus the Netherlands. And then I get my two pre... Uh, I guess the Dutch were my like pre-tournament uh, uh, dark horse. Now I'm backing Portugal. So Netherlands, Portugal in the final, and we get a new champion. Uh, I'm excited for that. Oh, Let's make what about the theory that there's a lot of England fans who say if, if England can beat France, then they can go all the way and win everything. So if England beat France, does that change your opinion? Ryan, is that is just you it, who says that? Yeah, yeah. I was just yeah. say like our former president. No, lots fans. of England fans. Yeah, yeah lots. Many of people are saying is Ryan. Every, everybody Ryan. saying, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, who I've never heard of them. They're a very small country. I'm not familiar. Having said the other day that I was now supporting them. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I really I think it could be anybody. I, I just feel now duty bound to support Portugal. And as I said on Twitter, seeing happy Bruno Fernandes uh, always makes me happy. So uh, mm. between him, João Felix playing like the João Felix we thought he would be when he cost over 100 million euros. Uh, I, I loved, I just love the way they ended up winning this one. I love Rafael Leao coming on and just, uh, just doing doing Rafael Leal things that we all knew he could do. It's mm. great. They're going to win. It's going to be wonderful. Congratulations to Portugal. It's cool. Port- Portugal is a very beautiful country. Great people as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that unless, you know, England beat France and then it's a different story. We shall see. We shall see. <laughs> all right. The last thing to do on this podcast, very specific predictions for the next uh, lot of games, which will be on Friday. Croatia taking on Brazil in the first quarter final, then Netherlands against Argentina. Let's get some very specific predictions for Croatia versus Brazil from Graham Rutherford. Okay, so my VSP for this game is that Marcelo Brozovic will have more touches of the ball than any other midfielder on the pitch. So not just Croatian midfielders, Brazilian midfielders as well. I spoke a little bit about this yesterday, but I think this is going to be a different sort of test for Brazil. And Croatia might well have more possession because that's where their strength is. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win. And I think Brazil will maybe rip them to shreds in in quick transition. But yes, I think Brozovic, um, he's had more touches than any other Croatian player at this World Cup. And I think that will continue against Brazil, even if Croatia end up losing that one. Okay. Joe Lowry, thoughts on this game? So I think Neymar will be fouled at least five times in this match. I think he's going to be on the ball a lot. His ankle might look like the size of a soccer ball by the time the match is over, which could be a fun little subplot point. He was fouled three times against South Korea, nine times against Serbia. He's been fouled a a decent amount when he's been on the field in this tournament, which hasn't been all that much. I think he's going to have plenty of time on the ball to dictate the game. I think he's going to have lots of touches, and I think that's going to lead to him being fouled at least five times in this match. Isn't he fouled at least five times in every match? You would think, except for one against South Korea, where he was fouled three times. So there is some risk here, Ryan. I'm I'm trying to add some sauce. (laughs) <laughs> Source appreciated, Joseph. Um, Netherlands versus Argentina. I'll jump in with one. Uh, I have predicted that Cody Gakpo will, will be dispossessed fewer than three times. So at uh, this tournament so far in four games, he's been dispossessed eight times, uh, four times, or four, four times against Ecuador, zero times against Qatar because Qatar. Um, the Argentine, you know, the midfield's got lots of energy and quickness and the defense is pretty decisive. But the Argentine defense... Um, has only dispos- only had eight dispossessions against Australia and then seven dispossessions in each of their other group games, which sounds like a decent amount, but it's actually quite a lot lower than many of the other teams. Like Netherlands uh, d- defence dispossessed uh, 12 times against the US and there was a time, another game, where they dis- dispossessed the uh, opponent 15 times fr- from the defence. So I think this Argentine d- defence will have less um, opportunities to take the ball off Gakpo. So he will be dispossessed Fewer than three times, Taylor. Do you regret making a prediction that involved you having to say defense and dispossessed in the same like breath? <laughs> I was actually trying to think. My brain 
sometimes says defense because I've been in America for so long and defense. it tripped clap, me up. Clap, clap. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, I am of a similar uh, mind to Joe Lowry. I, too, think the uh, Argentinian midfield will be uh, high energy and running all around, but I think they will also be very much focused on Frankie de Jong. I think Frankie de Jong will be fouled at least twice before halftime. Uh, against the USA, he was fouled zero times. Same for Qatar and Ecuador. But against Senegal, he was fouled three times in the entirety of the game. So uh, I'm, I, I am also kind of taking a risk with this one. But I, I think what we saw is that he is... The Dutch can be very direct. They can be sort of very quick in the counter, but they can also try to build through him, and he is very good individually at making a difference if they're under pressure. And I think Argentina, if they're trying to disrupt the way the Dutch want to play, I think taking him out of the game, literally or figuratively, will be part of that. So I expect him to be fouled a couple times in that first half, just as a slow it down, break up the play, and also let him know what kind of game it's going to be. I think that's uh, that's a distinct possibility. I want to see Lissandro Martinez on Frankie oh. de Jong. That is the battle I want. I want to see Lissandro Martinez pull his hair and call him stupid. Just, and, just do the waterboy yeah. style, like fully two, two-footed flying through the air. And then be like, what? Come on. Yeah, That's exactly. a yellow at best. Yeah. So guys, um, I believe we've had, what, 57 games this World Cup? Now we've got how yeah. many left? Six or seven left? We've got seven left. Um, I suppose eight, including the third place playoff as well. Nobody includes that one. Nobody includes that one. Um, these next two days are the first two days we've had off of this tournament in several years, I, I believe. Um, what are we all going to do with ourselves? I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do without the soccer. Talk two about soccer. Four times a day. Yeah, we'll Almost certainly. Or write about soccer. Yeah, I'm going to re- re-watch all the games that have happened yeah. already. Oh, and what people can can do if they're listening, uh, Graham put out some tweets from the TSS account that sort of meant we're going to do like a a post-World Cup, I guess not a post-World Cup, but post-the-US-in-the-World-Cup survey of, of people's thoughts on the United States, best players, most disappointing players, what they want to see happen next, how they feel about the program. Uh, if you go to the TSS Twitter account, at Total Soccer Show, uh, you'll be able to find that, uh, like the first one and then the thread in there. But we'd love to hear what people think. Uh, we're going to talk about that, I believe, as a foursome on Thursday. We shall indeed. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, my friend. Graham Rutherford, pleasure as always, good sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joe Lowry, I do hope Neymar gets fouled sometimes for your sake. Thank you very much. Me too, Ryan, me too. (laughs) Listener, thank you very much for joining us on this one and all of them. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.